Good morning. How's your weekend going? Wow, that bad, huh? You still came to church? I give you that. I give you that. Hey, welcome to Portico Church Arlington. My name is Jason Connor, lead pastor here. It's my privilege to be with you as we open the Word of God. Uh, been on holiday a little bit and enjoyed that. Um, so thankful for Pastor Nate Wagner and last week Pastor Steve Reed from Doxology bringing the Word of God. So love that. And if you're joining us uh, from home, thank you so much for being with us today as we worship the Lord. We'll be in Romans chapter 8 today as we're wrapping that series up. We'll be in verses 31 through 34 today. We're learning, we have been learning what it means to apply the power of the gospel in our everyday life. Man, there's a big disconnect from saying, yeah, I know Jesus died for my sins, and how does that change Monday, Tuesday afternoon? Like, what does it look like to live our life in Christ, to walk that out in faith? And we know this is not an easy time. Uh, COVID has been called a catalyst, and I believe that's true, meaning that it speeds things up. So if there's a weakness in your life, it moves it quick, it'll break it. It'll break it. And sometimes it reveals strengths you didn't know you had. So as I was talking about this with somebody, doing a little research about it, um, we, I was, a friend of mine were trying to parse the difference between what is being, what's it feel like to be overwhelmed and anxious, which a lot of, everybody's experienced that, you have too much to do, versus what does it feel like to be burned out? First, like, I don't know, the same thing? Aren't you anxious when you're burned out? Not really. It's different. Uh, and maybe you can resonate with this. Uh, the way that uh, he described it is when you're anxious or overwhelmed by things, it feels like you're drowning, like you just can't tread water, you're slipping, you're going under, and then somebody hands you something to hold, and you're just like, I can't do this anymore. We, I think we all know what that is. Burning out's a little bit different because it's complete emotional fatigue. In fact, the way I've experienced it uh, at times, and even a little bit now, like it's not really about emotions. They're gone. You kind of lose your capacity to feel. Um, it, it's about if, if, it's, if dryness, it's dryness, right? It's not drowning. It's not being overwhelmed. It's like, ah, meh. Like, I don't even want to do anything, right? You feel that. And I know that COVID has pushed this on people. Well, here's the problem with that, and I, as I've been thinking about the text this week. If you're losing your capacity to feel, what does that mean for your ability to feel God's love? And does that matter? See, as we get to the end of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is absolutely bending over backwards to make us feel the love of God. He knows, because he's experienced it, if you don't feel that at some level, it won't change your life. If you don't believe that at your core level, that God is for you, you lose confidence, you lose courage, and the way burnout works is you back away from people. You isolate. I don't want to be around you. We pull back, and we will do that with God too. I've seen that in my life. I've seen that in the lives of others. So where this text goes is a place we all need. How do we feel the love of God? Now, what are some of the things that everybody feels? 
this text deals with them. We feel condemned. We feel condemned. Or we feel alone. I think everybody experiences that. Well, today and over the next week as well, next week, we'll be walking through what do we do with that? How do we gain confidence in God's love for us? So let's jump right in, knowing that regardless of where you are, maybe you're doing great, maybe you're Maybe you have a lot of emotions. Maybe you're frustrated with that. Or maybe you're just not feeling anything at all. Wherever you are, God has something for you today. He wants to meet you in his text. So let's go there. Chapter 8 of Romans, we're going to start at verse 31. It says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. Different situations in life, different feelings, different exhaustions. Here's what we all need, though. We need to understand this. We need to understand what it means that you're for us, God. And our prayer today is that as we open up your word, you would open this treasure for us so we might behold its beauty and never be the same. Lord, transform us through it. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Can you feel that? There wasn't a lot of theology there. He just wants you to feel it. He wants you to know it. Uh, Probably one of the most profound things we've heard in Romans chapter 8 isn't theological, although there's high-level theology, and it all matters. He sums it up by saying, hey, what are we supposed to say about all these things? God is for us. That is the gospel right there. God is for you. Can you honestly say that about yourself? God is for Jason. God is for me. Can you say that with a straight face and believe it? See, the, te- the big idea of the text is that your confidence and courage that you have is going to flow out of God's love for you, which is exercised in his commitment to you. You hear that? Your confidence has to come from there, or else it's not going to last, from God's personal love for you. And there's three ways the text opens that up. In other words, there's three doors for us to open. We're trying to find our confidence, and we'll walk through those today because the text does. And the first door is God's provision. You are not going to have lasting confidence unless you are confident in God's provision for you. Second, it's God's uh, decision. It talks about God justifying us, but that's a decision that he makes, not you. So God's decision, and lastly, God's position. Because where is God? It talks about Jesus being at the right hand of the Father. That matters to your confidence now. So we'll walk through that together in this text. His provision for you, uh, his decision for you to justify you, and also his position. Where is that? I know it all rhymes. Um, I just I have to do that or else I'll forget it all. So your confidence is necessary, and out of that blooms courage, but it comes from God's love for you. So let's understand 
what it means to have confidence in God's love. First, in his provision. So what is this text here that says, what does it mean? It says, what shall we say to all these things? That's a collective term, and it's meant, he's getting to the end of chapter 8, and it's meant to call our mind back to everything that we've heard in chapter 8. In fact, I think we could probably stretch it back to Romans chapter 5, where he starts by saying that we have been justified by faith, so we have peace with God. But let's just stick with chapter 8. What are some of the things that we have learned? What are these things that we're talking about? Well, first, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It started out that way. If we're exercising faith in Jesus, there's no condemnation. And then we moved into this fact that we have a partnership with the Holy Spirit. And one of the things the Spirit of God does is confirms to you over and over and over to your spirit that you are an adopted child of God. And boy, does he have to work overtime because not only do we not believe it, every day we get up, we forget it. That identity slips away from us. So these things, the Spirit of God is convincing you that you belong to God. What else is in there? Also, changing our desires so that we can live by the Spirit and by the power of the Spirit, even when it's so as far as to say that all of creation, everything that God has created by his hands, is longing to see our glory. Right? There's a future glory that we have a taste of now by the Spirit, but we don't have it in fullness, right? We suffer. The world is falling apart and unraveling, and all of creation is waiting to see the children of God revealed. And that fu- in the midst of that future glory, we suffer. All right? Yet, here's one of these things. Because of God's love for you, Everything that you experience, including or especially suffering, even unmet needs, has to submit, has to serve his purposes and plan for you. Has to. It's not an option. And we're safe in that. So these are the things that the Apostle Paul is talking about. How do we sum it up, he says? Oh, God is for you. In fact, he asks it as a rhetorical question. If God is for you, who can be against you? Now, it's not saying that, oh, Christians are always right. No, God saves bad people. If you're calling yourself saved, you're not a great person. God didn't save you, as we read the text, because you're great. He saved you because he's great. So know that. It's not like, oh, we're right. No, what it means is God is for us. Who can be against us? Listen, there's a lot of things against us ourselves, our own sin, culture, war, all of it. There's so many things that are against us, our jobs, relationships. So it's not that we're not going to suffer. It means that nothing is going to wage war on your soul and win. Nothing is going to drain God's life and purpose out of you. Nothing is going to derail your life so much so that you are not going to get home, that you are not going to thrive in Christ right here, right now, even when it feels like God is absent. God is for you. Who can be against you? So, God's provision. We have to find confidence first in this door. God's provision. God is for you. And, and, and what else there? How is he for us? Well, he's a big spender. You need to see this because the text goes directly to that. He wants you to set up logic in the way you live your life based on what God has given you. 
hey, listen, have you ever been on vacation with like a rich uncle? Do you have a rich uncle? I don't, but wouldn't that be great? Because if you went on vacation with a rich uncle, like you go to dinner, he's throwing down his credit card, like he's paying for fishing trips, like he just, and pretty soon on day two, you don't even like pretend to reach for your wallet. You're just like, he's got it, right? And, and you come to expect that rich Uncle Harry is going to throw down for this vacation, and it's going to be fun, and all our needs are going to be met. This is the type of mindset that we are meant to have to build confidence or to understand God's provision like that. So stop worrying and start enjoying what God has given to us. So let's listen to the logic here. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, that means it's all a gift based on God, not based on us earning it, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What things? He's going to get you home. There's never going to be a day when you need to wonder, what is my life about? Does God, is he still for me? He will bring everything into your life and work everything into your life to conform you, to shape you, to chisel you, to pull you out of death and into the life that he has for you. He's doing it. And he's a big spender and he has everything he needs and he will give you everything. We can't get off first base if we don't believe this. Your confidence has to start in God's provision for you. Um, we had kids in the first service, so this made more sense. But do you guys you know what a s'more is? Okay, right? Is that an American thing? Everybody knows what a s'more is. It's graham crackers and chocolate, a marshmallow, and if you have a bonfire in the back, if you go camping, this time of year you like to make s'mores. If you went camping and you absolutely love s'mores, one might say you lived for them. And you get out, and you're camping in a beautiful wilderness. You've got your tent set up, and the family's there. And it's after dinner, and the fire's going. It's like, hey, it's s'more time. And you find out that dad left the chocolate out, and it melted. And your little brother sat on the graham crackers. And there's no s'mores. You get disappointed. So what do you do? It's like, forget this trip and you stay in your tent for the rest of the week. You never come out. You don't enjoy it. I think this has actually happened to somebody in this place, right? And you're like, forget it. And you stay in your tent, and you pout. No s'mores, I ain't coming out. Friends, we do this with God's provision. Christ is the treasure. If God had a limit in his giving, it would stop at Christ. I'm going to tell you that. Imagine if God said, I'll give you every single thing you need, but here's why I draw the boundary, friend. You're not getting my son. Right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, eternal relationship. You know how relationships work and how a good relationship, you value it. Above. That's reasonable to me. You can have everything, but you're not going to destroy my son. I think that's reasonable. God didn't say that. He gave him up for us all. So if we're in our tent pouting about unmet needs. That doesn't mean we don't suffer and they don't, they don't matter. But if we're really check out, maybe we came for the s'mores and not for the beautiful trip. 
Reset your logic, knowing that God has given you the treasure. Treasure him. That's what repentance is. It's pushing other things and treasuring God in Christ Jesus. He is for you. Listen, you might lose your s'mores. Somebody might sit on your graham crackers, but you are never going to lose the banquet of the lamb. That's yours. It's never going to be taken out of your hand. We're going to taste it today in communion. God is for you. God's provision is for you. Build your confidence there. <sighs> so, confidence in God's love, first in his provision, second in God's decision. What do I mean by that? So what is God's decision? Well, you heard it in the text. God has made a decision that affects your life profoundly. I think we struggle with this. His decision is that he has decided to justify you. We've said this a lot. It's still abstract. It's judicial terminology. What it means is he has decided to publicly speak your righteousness. You are not just innocent. You are right or righteous before him. It's a little bit like going into a court and you ran a red stoplight and you got a ticket. But the judge is like, no, I see no evidence for this. I'm throwing it out. You're innocent. Go, get out of my courtroom. It's like that, but it's more profound and more intense because when the text says, who will bring any charges against God's elect? A charge is an accusation that's true. It's an accusation against you that's going to stick. And the text is saying, hey, help me understand, again, rhetorical language, who's going to make a charge against you that's going to stick? Well, honestly, probably a lot of people could do that, especially against me, right? I don't know about you, but the text is saying, no, 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 that's not how it works in God's courtroom. It is God who justifies. He justifies you. He declares you right or righteous or innocent, and you receive that through faith. That's what we call grace. We have forgiveness. We have God's righteousness. We have fellowship with him. So this is God's decision, and you need to learn to live in this. And this is so hard. This is one of the reasons we do not enjoy life or relationship with God, because we enter into a relationship with him through faith, and then we spend the rest of our life feeling condemned, even though, rightly so, right, many times, but we will not allow God to declare us righteous. We have got to find a reason in our lives that he loves us. We just can't let him love us and provide everything. So are you there? So think about that. If God is justifying us, declaring us righteous, what's condemning you? What makes you feel condemned? Your boss? You should never do it right. Your spouse? Because you're never enough. That parent sitting over there because they're so much better than, you know, they got good kids and I don't. Media? You know? You see these ads, and you're never going to look like that. Condemned. You know, I put a post on, on Facebook, and like three people like it. Condemned. Right? We, we do this. What is condemning you? Let's get a little closer. How about your goals and your actions and the things you're never going to actually end up doing? Are they condemning you? It's good to discern where that condemnation is coming from because nobody actually has the right to condemn you, eternally speaking, in this, except for God's word. And yes, if we measure our life against the word of God, 
we are condemned. That's where it comes from. And God is saying, you are justified. In other words, friend, God has the final say in your life. I don't care if you trust him or not. If you're trusting in Jesus, though, if you're operating in faith, if you're learning to live your life in Christ, God has the final say in your life, period. And his say, he's showing you his cards right now. He's saying, you are justified. You are right before me. Learn to live in it. That's how grace works. But I'm not good. Okay. The Spirit of God is going to be working on you and transforming you. But I'm going to tell you something about your pastor. I'm never going to stand before God in my own strength. I sin, friends. And so do you. And if it's up to me to have a position where I can stand before God and look him in the eye and say, hey, thanks for saving me. I got it from here. There's zero chance that's ever going to happen. You need to hear this and you need to believe it. God has the final say. It is he, him, who justifies. Um, you know, NFL season, I love NFL season, but one of the weird things they do, have you ever seen an official review? So like if somebody runs a play and like maybe the receiver stepped out of bounds, but they can't tell, and so they call it an incomplete pass. This guy who's dressed up like a zebra goes into this little booth and he looks at the screen for like three minutes and he comes out. Here's what matters in that game. Whatever that ref says is it. Done. That's how it's going to be. Friends, you need to understand that God has a final say in your life. And if you're in Christ Jesus, he's calling you righteous, but I'm not. Well, why then? Why is he calling you righteous? Is he a liar? Are these empty words? Is this wishful thinking on God's part? I don't know. But we, let's get there because the text does. But a lot of times your confidence and your courage is empty because you don't believe what God says of you. And I get that. But you have to not only rest in his decision and his provision, you have to understand why. So let's look at the last part here, God's position. This is why God the Father can justify you and mean it. Verse 34. This is so good. Who is to condemn? What's the answer? Christ Jesus is the one who died. That doesn't seem like, that seems nonsensical to me. Because the question was, who is to condemn? Well, Christ Jesus is the one who died. What God is saying is that his position is that Jesus is in the dirt. He bore the wrath of real sin. That's called condemnation. He didn't earn it. He took it on. He bore that on the cross, let that speak to you, and that placed him in the dirt. That was his position for three days. That gives you forgiveness. That bears the weight of our sin. That gives full satisfaction for us, period. But it's not enough, because Jesus didn't. It goes on. Who is to condemn? In other words, no one, for those who are in Christ Jesus, because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. 
So his position just isn't that he died for good cause. He died to, he died to, bore, to bear sin, and he walks out of the tomb. He was raised. Um, if you've ever bought a house, something really fun and kind of terrifying happens at the very last part, when you close. That's called closing day. And you go, and you sit in the agent's office, and they have the keys over here. And you're signing like a thousand papers. And at the end, they verify to see if the payment from your mortgage company went to their bank while you transfer. And if it didn't, they pull the keys back. You do not get the keys to your house, no matter how bad you want it, no how much you think you earned it, unless it's been paid for, unless the funds have been transferred. The fact that Jesus walks out of this tomb is absolute evidence, physical evidence, that God has received his work on the cross as full payment for you. This is why God can say, you are justified before me. And it's not fiction, and it's not a story, and it's not wishful thinking, because Christ has taken on your payment. He has overcome sin and death, and as Revelation 1.18 says, he holds the keys to death and Hades. The fact that he walked out of the tomb kicked open the door for you to have access to God the Father in a real love-trust relationship, period. That's God's position, but Jesus didn't stay in the dirt. He didn't even stay in the earth. It says he's at the right hand of the Father, indeed interceding for us. Friends, you need Jesus at the finish line. He's bodily at the right hand of the Father, the risen king. He earned this title. You need Jesus at the finish line bringing you, working with God the Father, working out your salvation, revealing this salvation over and over and over within the Trinity and pulling us towards home. You need him there. Again, this is physical evidence. He's bodily there of your future. So when you look at Jesus backwards, into the resurrection, you see him at the right hand of the Father now. That's physical evidence of what your future's going to be. If you don't believe that or understand that, that's going to empty you of confidence and kill your courage because this is a big part of God's love for you. Hebrews 4 says, Consequently, he is able, that is Jesus, to save to the uttermost. That means anytime, anywhere, forever. I don't care who you are. Yeah, but my sins, tell, I don't care who you are if you're trusting him. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God, dangerous through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what he's up to. And the Spirit of God is pushing you, changing you, pushing you towards home. Jesus is at the finish line. It is finished. Friends, this is God's love for you on display. This will squash everything in your life. But I don't feel anything right now. That's why we have the word of God. Trust it. Trust it and engage it and the emotions come. I've learned that. Set your mind on truth. That's what you need to do. Sometimes this is all we've got. Friends, do you believe that God loves you? Do you? If you look backwards last week, did it look last week like God loved you? Were you living as though God's love for you is, he's for you, always and forever? 
Listen, the Father has chosen you. You've never been unwanted. Jesus has accomplished your redemption and is at the right hand of the Father right now. This is your future. And the Spirit of God is in you and with us, pushing you forward, changing you into the likeness of who God made you to be, like Christ. This is absolutely indefeatable. This is what it means that God is for you. Live in that love. Draw close to him. Don't back up. Push into him. Well, I've never had a relationship. Then repent and give yourself to him. This will be all true for you today. Well, I'm a Christian, but I don't feel God's love. Quit worrying about the graham crackers. I know it hurts because we all wanted s'mores, but God has a bigger banquet for you, right? He's going to get you there. He's going to get you there. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Um, I have no chance, and you know that. I'm not lying. I have no chance of being righteous before you outside of receiving the gift of salvation through faith, everything you've done for me, Jesus. So I thank you for that. I pray for this church. God, start a revival. Light us on fire, God, with your spirit. Help us to have such confidence in your love for us that we trust in your provision, we trust in your word, Lord, and we trust that you will bring us home. We love you and we praise you. In the name of Jesus, amen.